Thank you very much and thank you all for braving the elements to be out here this evening. It's been an interesting day, but then in Aberdeen, I guess, as in St. Andrews, this is what we expect from time to time. There are confused debates which I'm going to be talking about this evening. In the first lecture, I sketched the modern contexts in which debates about natural theology were taking place. The questions were neither neutral nor disinterested. Larger movements of culture and politics, of philosophy and revolution were interlinked in swirling multidimensional historical reality. And within this same whirlpool, we find the question of Jesus and the Gospels. The English deist Matthew Tyndall and the Irish rationalist John Toland had already raised critical questions about the Gospels. Whether the gospel questioning led them to deism or vice versa, or whether both arose through wider 17th century concerns is not our present problem. But they undermined the standard answer to skeptics. The skeptic would question divine involvement in the, in the world and the orthodox would respond that God had revealed himself in Jesus of Nazareth, QED. So now the deists respond by chipping away at the miraculous, Hume, and by proposing that Jesus was a failed revolutionary, Rhymarus. And they succeeded. Natural theology, ever since, has largely ignored the question of the Gospels. But the Gospels mattered then, and they matter now. Popular British culture today only really knows one theological debate. Does God intervene in the world, or doesn't he? Christians, people assume, believe in a God who does strange things like virgin births and resurrections, whereas most people think science has disproved them. Journalists sometimes ask bishops whether they believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection. This is a tri trick question because it makes the bishop appear either as a naive fundamentalist, if he or she says yes, or as a dangerous liberal, if they say no. And this then collapses into the well-known yes prime minister cliché, where the prime minister says, we have to keep the balance in the Church of England. What balance, asks his wife? Oh, between those who believe in God and those who don't, comes the response. And the sociologist Grace Davy once asked an interviewee, do you believe in a God who can change the course of events on earth? And back came the response, no, just the ordinary one. The ordinary God doesn't intervene, it seems. He seems quiescent. There is good biblical precedent. Jesus goes to sleep in the boat. But the point of that story is that he wakes up and stills the storm. That isn't what the ordinary God is supposed to do. Hence, Rhymaris's protest. The Gospels, he said, were written up to hide Jesus' revolutionary message and to launch a new religion in which God has a son who does supernatural tricks to prove he's real. And that remains the popular perception on both sides. Many conservatives accept something like that as the official position and affirm it, while liberals deny it and think they've disproved Christianity. This low-grade British theological standoff bears little relation to the formative issues, especially in Germany. German discussions about God and the world, about Jesus and the Gospels, formed part of more complex discussions framed by Kant and Hegel and bumped along by both philosophy, Schopenhauer, Feuerbach and others, and turbulent politics. The British 
didn't usually get it. When Schweitzer wrote his Von Reimarus zu Freda, he was studying Life of Jesus writing in its wider context. But the English translation retitled the book, assuming that it was about the quest of the historical Jesus, just trying to get at the facts. Life was, in fact, more complicated. The North Sea was functioning as Lessing's broad, ugly ditch. People over here were looking for contingent truths of history. People over there concentrated on the eternal truths of reason. Oversimplification, of course, but it makes the point. Proposals advanced within different cultural settings were heard in Anglo-Saxon circles as, quote, assured results, unquote. When I was young, we were all taught, here are the assured results of higher criticism. That phrase repeated itself again and again. And these were often defended not by arguments, but by the theological version of English social snobbery. Questioning the assured results that we'd got from Germany would be like drinking out of the finger bowl. If you want to sit at the top table, you better learn your manners. So Reimarus's theory, Jesus the failed revolutionary, was actually incompatible with Schweitzer's, Jesus the failed end of the world visionary, but together they generated the, quote, assured results, unquote, that the Gospels had got it wrong. And you then need alternative explanations, hence the ongoing popularity of William Vrede's bizarre theory about the messianic secret and Bultmann's proposals about form criticism. It was assumed that the scholars, with their rigorous historical study, were siding with the 18th century deists. Science had proved evolution. Scientific economics insisted on laissez-faire policies. Scientific historiography had proved that God doesn't intervene, so the Gospels must be wrong. Meanwhile, simple believers, still taking incarnation, miracles, resurrection and all at face value, were, it was implied, living in the Dark Ages, or at least in the early 18th century. And these false antitheses continue to haunt today's culture wars. How does this affect the quest and its relevance for natural theology? Modern biblical criticism has, very broadly, combined two strands. First, the reformers and their successors were appealing to original meanings, going back ad fontes, good Renaissance stuff, as opposed to medieval accretions. That quest continued from Luther to the Wesleys and beyond. Let's go back to the Bible and find out what Christianity was supposed to be at the start, the original authentic faith. But then second, when the rationalists appealed to original meanings, they didn't want to get back to early Christian faith. They wanted to expose it as false. They didn't want to purify the church or even to replace the wars of religion with cool tolerance. They wanted to replace God talk with scientific rationalism. But since both reformers and rationalists were opposed to medieval Christianity, they effectively combined bringing a Protestant energy and style to the skeptical task, leaving Protestants who wanted to hold on to the Christian faith with a largely ahistorical Platonic idealism, as I was saying last time. If that sounds confusing, it was and is. But these confusions 
rampant in continental scholarship, have often largely been flattened out in British retrievals. So the story of what followed is thus quite different from what you find in some histories of biblical scholarship. When you start studying um, biblical scholarship, you are given large books, the history of, the study of, New Testament, whatever it is. And they tend to give you a pretended, smooth, wissenschaftlich progression from one assured result to another. Everyone building on the scientific results that their predecessors had produced. Actually, it wasn't like that at all. It is much more the confused noise which follows from the pursuit of social and cultural agendas by other means. Debates between right and left Hegelian wings played themselves out with liberal theories of progress or developmental theories of salvation history, standing over against the revolutionary apocalyptic proposals of Schweitzer and then of that well-known Swiss Marxist Karl Barth. All this taught to Anglo-Saxon students as the solid and assured results of modern historical critical study has made it very hard for actual study of Jesus and his followers to play any serious role in theological debates. Not only Christology and soteriology, where you'd have thought you'd have to have it, but also natural theology. So we look quickly from Strauss to Kesemann. I start with perhaps the most famous of the relevant 19th century Germans. David Friedrich Strauss is described in Wikipedia as having portrayed a historical Jesus, quote, whose divine nature he denied, unquote. This is a classic example of what I just said. Wikipedia, as often, is dumbing down a complex point into the either-or that its readers expect. Strauss, in fact, argued a sophisticated case, framed in idealist philosophy, rooted in extensive awareness of ancient mythology, arguing that the Gospels are mythological presentations of larger truths, just as the Nordic or Germanic myths told great sprawling stories about the world and the human condition. And Strauss was, moreover, applying Hegel's dialectic to the sources, arguing that there were conflicting forces at work in the early Christian movement from which a higher religious truth would emerge. The Gospels, he argued, were written in the second century as the legendary embodiment of the hopes and beliefs that were then held by the community. And since for him, religions in general, and Christianity in particular, were constituted by ideas, not events, he saw no problem. The ideas were there, still there. They were intact. They could stand up without needing to be rooted in events. The oversimplification in Wikipedia was repeated by the American Westar Institute, the parent body for the now defunct Jesus Seminar, which instituted an order of David Friedrich Strauss, honoring scholars who they said had, quote, rigorously applied the historical critical method to the study of the Gospels and the creeds, the method that Strauss had pioneered, end of quote. Note, in Strauss's day, there was no such thing as the historical critical method. Whatever Strauss was doing, it wasn't history, whether critical or otherwise. 
the Westar Institute was not attempting Strauss's sophisticated mythological and Hegelian retrieval. Of course, if we come to Strauss with the question, well, did those events happen or didn't they? He will give the same answer, more or less, as the Jesus Seminar, but that wasn't his primary purpose. Strauss's intent was more positive. He was opposed to the rationalists, and the Jesus Seminar was precisely rationalist in inspiration and method, just as much as he, Strauss, was opposed to the supernaturalists. He was trying to avoid the naive trivialization which saw the Gospels as mere transcriptions of events. But his point was not to deny any significance to Jesus. He was inviting his readers to contemplate the vast reaches of supra-historical truth as reflected in mythological dress. Myth was very popular in mid-19th century Germany, enabling one to explore, like the Greek tragedians, the inside of events and human motivations in what was deemed to be a universally relevant way. Strauss was making a post-lessing move. Forget those contingent possibilities and go straight for the eternal truths. And what better vehicle to express them with than myth? Now, this sense of myth became confused with other senses a hundred years later by Rudolf Bultmann, as we'll see in a moment. I don't think Strauss made the same muddles that Bultmann did. He was pleading for an idealist version of Christian faith to which actual first-century events would be less relevant. Bultmann picks that up but confuses it. Neither Strauss nor Bultmann was a rationalist or a naturalist, as the Westar Institute imagined and as today's supernaturalist apologists have supposed. They were philosophical idealists. They represented the platonic turn within the larger Epicurean framework. The split between God and the world still obtains, but Plato will help us bridge the gap, whatever the cost. So we jump from Strauss in the 1830s to Albert Schweitzer in the 1890s and early 1900s, pausing only to note the stress laid both by Richard Wagner and by Friedrich Nietzsche on myth. Schweitzer was deeply influenced by both. He is famous for a great many things, from his extraordinary book on Bach to his lifetime of medical missionary work in Africa. But for us what matters is his belief that Jesus and his first followers expected the imminent end of the world. This proposal was conceived within and then eagerly propagated as part of the Epicurean worldview with its radical disjunction of God and the world, of heaven and earth. Schweitzer's proposal, accepted as dogma by large swathes of biblical and theological scholarship, belonged in and reinforced a worldview in which the chance of moving from this present world to any conclusions about God were all but ruled out from the start. The end of the world Jesus belongs, in other words, with the implicit and sometimes explicit rejection of natural theology. These questions are not normally joined up. I think they should be. The idea of first century Jews, including Jesus and his early followers, expecting the literal and imminent end of the world is in fact a modern myth. 
and I mean myth, not only in the popular sense of an untrue tale, but in the more technical sense of a story invented by a community to sustain its common life and purpose. In arguing against this myth, I therefore intend to kill a fatted, sacred cow. Any prodigals hoping for a feast should come home right now. In this myth, two young pioneering German scholars, Johannes Weiss and Albert Schweitzer, stumbled like eager Victorian explorers upon a hidden truth. The Jewish apocalyptic writings were predicting the end of the world, that Jesus shared this view, and that after his disappointed death, his followers continued the same hope, meeting their own disappointment. Schweitzer employed the rhetoric of radical difference. Jesus, he said, belongs to a world that is strange to us. He passes by our time and returns to his own. The right question here is, why did this idea so quickly become received orthodoxy in German and Anglo-American scholarship? Neither Weiss nor Schweitzer had made extensive or careful study of the relevant Jewish texts. Had they done so, they might have realized that their end-of-the-world reading was a naive, literalistic mistake. Klaus Koch pointed out long ago that German theology and exegesis was then remarkably ignorant about apocalyptic writing. So why the rush into modern myth? Schweitzer's rhetoric was mere smokescreen. Schweitzer himself lived in, delighted in, and wallowed in a culture whose controlling myth climaxed in the end of the world. Schweitzer was a Wagner fan. This fact has been largely, astonishingly, passed over in studies of Schweitzer. Biographers have noted his love of Wagner's music, his trance-like teenage state after hearing Tannhäuser, his ongoing friendship with Cosima Wagner, and then with Wagner's son Siegfried. Schweitzer's own massive work on Bach returns again and again to comparisons with Wagner, arguing that Wagner's work had prepared Germany for a fresh appreciation of Bach himself. But the obvious conclusion seems not to have been drawn. One recent article probes into the key texts, but only a little. Consider this for a start. The Ring, all four operas of it, is ultimately all about the world coming to an end. One famous study of the operas is called I Saw the World End. And all this clearly impacted Schweitzer as a young man. He attended the ring cycle in Bayreuth, all 20 hours of it, when it was revived in 1896. And he shared with his keyboard teacher who'd gone with him the excitement of the end of Goethe Demerung, Quote, when all the themes of the trilogy are massed together and engulfed when the world falls into ruins, exclamation mark, end of quote. Schweitzer returned to Bayreuth no fewer than three times in the very same years that he was writing the three parts of his work on Jesus and then his survey of Pauline scholarship. Throughout this time, he was also, of course, giving organ recitals around Europe and writing articles on organ building. Here is the almost unbelievable schedule. 1892, Johannes Weiss's Jesus Proclamation of the Kingdom of God. 1894, five, Schweitzer was on military service and was reading the Gospels in Greek in his spare time. That was his primary Gospel study. 
1896, his first visit to Bayreuth. 1898 and 9, he's in Paris and then Berlin, studying the organ with Vidor and theology with von Harnack. 1899, he writes his philosophy PhD on Kant, as you do. 1900, his licentiate in theology, which was the first bit of his Jesus work, Problem of the Last Supper. 1901, second visit to Bayreuth. 1901, also his Habilitationsschrift, The Secret of the Messiah and the Passion, the second half of his initial Jesus work, published on the same day as Vreda's Messianic Secret. 1903 to 6, he was principal of St. Thomas's College in Strasbourg, down there by the river next to the Lutherstrasse. 1904 and 5, within that, he is writing his two volumes on Bach. 1905, he starts studying medicine. 1906, his third visit to Bayreuth, 1906 also, von Reimarus zu Freda. 1909, his fourth visit to Bayreuth, 1911, Paul and his interpreters. Extraordinary. And he qualifies in medicine. And then 1912, he produces his doctorate in medicine, which is the psychiatric study of Jesus. Because some people after his initial Jesus work had said if Jesus believed that stuff, he must have had a screw loose. So Schweitzer said, okay, I'm gonna be a doctor, I'll analyze Jesus' psychology. The parallels between Wagner's epic and Schweitzer's reconstructions are far too close to be coincidental. The myth of Valhalla, of the old gods, of their struggle with love and power in the face of dark forces that have renounced love for the sake of power, all that reaches its climax in the ultimate and necessary destruction of Valhalla itself. Already at the end of the first opera, Erda informs Wotan of, quote, the truth that everything ends, unquote. And at the close of the cycle, Brunhilde, facing the corrupt world of gods and mortals, performs, quote, an act that burns all this corruption away, unquote. In this twilight of the gods, as a recent writer has said, her will coincides again with Wotan's, and what he suffers passively, she, in a magnificent gesture, wills on them all. That word will is so important. Think of Nietzsche and all that went before. My proposal here is simple. The notion of the world's end as a necessary outcome, simultaneously tragic and heroic, the result of a new sort of power and the will to exercise it, the power of self-sacrificial love, was there in the operas before it was there in the books, which Schweitzer wrote in between his visits to Bayreuth. This was not a first century Jewish idea. It was a glorious piece of late 19th century German mythology. Of course, it appeared novel and strange, as Kierkegaard had done, in a world of Hegelian optimism. Too strange for some, Johannes Weiss, often seen as Schweitzer's colleague, reverted to the Richelian view of the gradually emerging kingdom. Schweitzer, bold by contrast in his consistent eschatology, put forward a scheme much closer to Friedrich Nietzsche, whose own often nihilistic philosophy has strong Epicurean features. Nietzsche was another of Schweitzer's great heroes. Schweitzer says at one point, there are three great moralists, uh, Jesus, Kant, and Nietzsche. Quite extraordinary. Anyone else has combined them in quite that way. Of course, by then, Nietzsche had become disenchanted with Wagner. That's another point. But that doesn't affect the conclusion that when Schweitzer proposed the end of the world, Jesus, he was reflecting, as he once admitted in a candid moment, ideas that were in the air at the time. 
The public mood has been extensively demonstrated recently by the German historian Lucien Hölscher in a number of works. The ideas were also, of course, unwelcome to many. Some suggested, as I said, that if Jesus was like that, he must have been deluded, which is why Schweitzer did his work on psychology. End of the world ideas were in the air elsewhere too. It's quite a stretch to leap from massive German grand opera to novels and short stories, but these may be straws in the same wind. H.G. Wells's The Time Machine, 1895, challenging the idea of endless progress, supposes that the world might, after all, come to an end. And in a different register, one character in Oscar Wilde's short story, The Picture of Dorian Gray, 1890, comments on the degenerate lifestyles of the time and murmurs, fin de siècle, and his companion answers sorrowfully, fin du globe, not just the century, the world. Schweitzer's ideas found a ready market in Britain. Some Edwardians had guessed that Victorian optimism had overreached itself. People then easily demythologized Schweitzer's portrait of Jesus, applying it to the perceived end of a particular way of life. Hensley Henson, dean and then bishop of Durham, often used to preach on the psalm text, I see that all things come to an end, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. And in all this, there is a massive implication for natural theology. If the world is coming to an end, to be replaced by the wholly other kingdom of God, the chance of being able to infer anything about the latter from the former are effectively nil. So what did those apocalyptic texts mean? We will look at them in the fourth lecture, but for the moment we note that a glance at Josephus and even a nodding acquaintance with the revolutionary movements of the period would not suggest end-of-the-world speculation. Josephus discusses the different parties and movements, but he never mentions that kind of thing. Recent work on texts from Daniel to 4th Ezra indicates that they were talking about the end of the present state of affairs, the transformation of the present world, and the undoing of the Jews' extended exile. Many Jewish writers expressed that hope in terms of the age to come, which would replace the present age. People have suggested that this was peculiar to apocalyptic literature or theology, but this is clearly wrong. It's frequently invoked by the rabbis, who almost by definition are not apocalyptic. So why would anyone else think otherwise? Here we look not only to Wagner and Nietzsche and the other anti-Hegelian thinkers of the late 19th century, but once more to the Epicurean framework. If heaven and earth are radically different and removed from one another, then the kingdom of heaven can only arrive if earth, the present world, is abolished. It's a metaphysical zero-sum game. You can't have both together. This has echoes of Lessing, though in a different mode. If there is a broad, ugly ditch between the eternal truths of reason and the contingent truths of history, the only way for those eternal truths to become real will be the abolition of history itself. So darkly, perhaps a bit cynically, if history is to be abolished, why bother doing real history yourself? Because a glance through Jewish evidence 
would have shown that though some Jews did expect God to do miraculous things to bring about his saving purposes, the hoped-for kingdom would still consist of a new state of affairs here on earth. To this day, if you ask Jewish scholars and rabbis why they don't accept Christianity, one of the many reasons that they give is that Jews believe that the world as it is has got to be changed and transformed, but Christians believe in pie in the sky when you die. Jews debated how to help God's project forwards. The Sadducees collaborated with Rome. The Pharisees urged Israel to obey Torah more strictly. The Essenes said their prayers and waited. The revolutionaries sharpened their swords. We have no evidence of people thinking the world was going to end. But the genuinely Jewish views were neither understood nor wanted at the end of the 19th century. They fell between two stools. On the one side, the Western view of salvation mocked by Nietzsche as Platonism for the masses. Let's leave the world and go to heaven. On the other side, Jewish theology as imagined by and vilified by liberal Protestants. Blood, soil, priestcraft, works righteousness. The actual Jewish expectations and the actual early Christian reworking of them were not in sight. So what could the kingdom of heaven mean? As we saw in the previous lecture, what Epicureanism lacked, any definite view of a heaven you might go to, Platonism could supply. But the normal 19th century Platonic heaven was again quite unlike earth. The images of disembodied souls sitting on clouds playing harps would not fit into Queen Victoria's drawing room, or for that matter, into Schweitzer's study in the Stift in Strasbourg. Thus, Neither Epicureanism nor Platonism could possibly have a kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. If heaven is coming, earth's got to be abolished. Schweitzer then claimed to put Jesus into his first century context and to discover that he believed in the end of the world. I am returning the compliment. By putting Schweitzer into his late 19th century context, I conclude that he believed what he did about Jesus because in the complex worldviews available to him, this was what he was almost bound to suppose. And when Europe was then set ablaze by Queen Victoria's squabbling grandchildren in 1914, the Kaiser, the Tsar and the King and all the rest cheerfully trundling off to war, there was a sense in which it did all come true. Valhalla fell, and with it the easy-going culture protestantismus of Harnack and Hermann, who between them had taught Schweitzer and Barth and Bultmann. When, after the war, Barth wrote his Romans commentary, insisting upon a fresh word vertically from above, he was, to be sure, reading St. Paul as well as Karl Marx, but he was looking out on the world described by Schweitzer the world that had had to come to an end so that something new could be born. And it was, of course, Barth, who later said nine to Emil Brunner. That's where my narrative about Schweitzer joins up publicly with the question of natural theology. Schweitzer had, in that sense, prepared the way. If the world is coming to an end, there is indeed an unbridgeable gulf between that world and any truth about God. And what Anglo-Saxon positivists have thought of as results about this historical Jesus, that he was an apocalyptic prophet expecting the end of the world, are thus umbilically related 
to the larger theological issues. Only when we see this double-sided picture can we attempt any biblically-based, Jesus-based reconstruction. With that, we leap into the 1920s and 30s. Once more greet my Gifford predecessor, Rudolf Bultmann. For him, the end of the world language in the Gospels and Paul, disproved in its literal sense, was to be reinterpreted through demythologization. That confused slogan combined three senses of myth. One, the flat sense of myth as old stories we can't believe in today. Two, the more interesting sense of myth as the stories cultures tell themselves to explain the human predicament, as with ancient Greek tragedies, and including particularly three, the cosmic myths in apocalyptic writings which encode a different kind of truth. Bultmann focused on what for him was central, the vital existential experience. He labelled that eschatology and he translated Jesus' apocalyptic language into those terms. Bultmann thus simultaneously retrieved Strauss's idealism and Hume's skepticism, and Strauss's emphasis on myth as well, by the way, while making his own reinterpretation of Schweitzer's conclusions. Now, demythologization contains an important element of truth. No wise reader of First Enoch imagines that the author is predicting an actual white bull being put in charge of other farm animals. If demythologizing means decoding such picture language, this is basically learning how to read. But if that gets muddled up with those other points, then chaos is come again. The problem relates directly to the God and world question underneath both exegesis and natural theology. Bultmann came, I think, within a few inches of the truth. But his theopolitical stance, like a thick and prickly hedge between two adjacent pathways, would never let him switch tracks. Ancient Jewish apocalyptic language was regularly used to address, in well-known code, what we would call political realities. Daniel 2 was not about a statue and a stone. Daniel 7 was not about sea monsters and a flying human. They were about actual worldly kingdoms, seen, to be sure, as instruments of dark powers. And they were about the actual kingdom-establishing victory of God that would overthrow and replace them. But this caused Bultmann a double problem. First, he didn't want to find this worldly political messages. He held a Lutheran two kingdoms theology. God and politics don't mix. He was a Neo-Kantian idealist. Ultimate truth meant platonic abstractions, not concrete particulars. He was in part a liberal modernist, assuming the non-occurrence of Jesus' resurrection and therefore seeing no signs of new or transformed creation that might challenge the status quo. He was an existentialist, reading apocalyptic language as code not for political realities, but for the decision of faith, and so needing to be stripped of its association with unacceptable ancient cosmology, and not least, Bultmann was faced with the rise of Nazism. The only political statement he could extract from his reading of first century Christian apocalyptic was an appeal for quietism. 
Throughout the 1930s, his favorite preaching text was 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says that because of the present distress, one should live in this world as if not, the married as if not married, the traders as if not buying and selling, and so on. One can well understand. If you were a friend and philosophical disciple of Heidegger, who joined the Nazi party, even though he then somewhat distanced himself from it, perhaps, all that, perhaps that was all that you could say. And Bultmann returns to the point in his 1955 Giffords, the theologian or preacher, he says, can make no comment on the political situation, except that we live on a different plane, touching the world only at a tangent, as if not. The analogy with Barth's position on natural theology is fascinating, just a tangential touching. Though Barth was able to launch a fiercer protest against Hitler, partly because he was back in Switzerland and so could speak, as it were, vertically from above into the situation, and partly because he was a Calvinist, not a Lutheran. So if Bultmann's first problem in reading the ancient texts was his unwillingness to discern any political theology, the second can be stated more briefly. Bultmann had no desire to acknowledge the reality of dark superhuman powers. This was partly because of his post-Hume modernism, but it was also because of his existentialism. Paul had spoken of sin not simply as a human act, but as a power that acts on humans. Bultmann understood him to be describing, in mythological language, the internal human struggle. And the solution to that struggle was simply for him that one should awaken the latent eschatological possibility. Bultmann's position on many issues is exegetically inexcusable for a historical critic. To understand Jesus and early Christianity, one would have to understand the Jewish world of the first century. But one of Bultmann's principles in his theological DNA from Luther and Kant was the rejection of all things Jewish. Judaism meant works righteousness. Whether Pelagian-style moralism or the existentialist version of that, grasping at my own identity. That was why Bultmann's lifelong religionsgeschichtliche quest had had him hunting for Christian origins in the non-Jewish world, all the way from his early interest in mystery religions to his later investment in Gnosticism. Neither worked. As for the actual Jewish first century world, Bultmann remained content with the caricatures you find in Schürer and Billebeck. He ignored the Jewish revolutionaries, Reimarus had been long forgotten, so he never inquired how they, the actual first century Kingdom of God people, were reading key texts. His supposed historical criticism was mostly just criticism. One did not, after all, want to base one's faith on history. That would risk turning faith into a work, as well as muddling up the two kingdoms. The end of the world myth thus suited Bultmann's philosophy, his theology, his politics, and his exegesis. His followers to this day continue to suggest that anyone who questions that foundation must be engaged in special pleading. The boot is actually on the other foot. And since Bultmann's work has shaped a good deal of continuing gospel scholarship, one will look in vain to that strand for anything that might help us gain a fresh vantage point on our underlying Gifford-related questions about God and the world, whether we're thinking about the possible action of God in the world 
or the possible inference to God from the world. The third movement to seize upon the end of the world myth as a hermeneutical tool were Bultmann's pupils, including Konzelmann and Kaiserman and the systematician Martin Werner, a lifelong friend of Schweitzer's. This too needs contextualizing. In the late 1930s, many in Germany, including not least the cultural critic Walter Benjamin, pinned their hopes on something new and wonderful emerging from the dangerous European turbulence of the 20s and 30s. Surely, they thought, the long-awaited utopia was about to arrive, whether from Hegelian progress or Marxist revolution. And when it didn't happen for Benjamin, when Ribbentrop and Molotov signed the Nazi-Soviet pact, hope crashed to the ground. And Benjamin's last work, shortly before his suicide, denounces history as utterly hopeless. Paul Clay's famous picture, Angelus Novus, was invoked. History, after all, was a pile of trash. So much for progress, so much too for Hegel. The dream had died. Barth wrote later about lecturing in Bonn after the war to young men who had forgotten how to smile. Kaiserman spoke of his generation being burnt children who would never again put their hands into the fire of salvation history. And Konzelman, meanwhile, argued that Luke represented a failure of nerve on the part of the post-70 church. Instead of living by a vertical faith in God's imminent victory, Luke was offering a horizontal account of Israel, Jesus, and the church. And to write a gospel at all, to suppose that the message of Jesus could be expressed historically, was already to lose the plot. Kaiserman, Konzelman, and with them an entire generation, thus kept Schweitzer's end-of-the-world belief for Jesus and his first followers. They projected back onto the early Christians the radical disappointment that their generation in Germany felt at the dashing of their own mid-century hopes. No wonder Bultmann and many of his followers turned to Gnosticism. That's what some disappointed Jews did after the failure of the Bar Kokhva revolt. That whole school thus articulated as two-stage problem. Jesus expected the end very soon and it didn't happen. He went to his death in disappointment. Actually, that elides various stages of Schweitzer's proposal. But second, Jesus' first followers transferred this hope to their own generation. The end would come while they were still alive and that didn't happen either. With that second disappointment, the church had to reshape itself. There are only two pieces of evidence which suggest anything like this. 2 Peter, John 21. Bultmann's successors used these passages as a yardstick to measure where different early Christian writings and movements stood in relation to AD 70 and the supposed delay of the parousia. Despite the fact that the apostolic fathers and their second century successors seem unaware that there's a problem. But they then used this to critique a comfortably reconstructed bourgeois German post-war piety. Kaiserman in particular saw only too clearly how dangerous the world still was. And he and others retrieved Bauer's category of Frucatholizismus, early Catholicism, to describe the supposed world of the Deuteropaulines, the pastorals, and especially of that wretched would-be historian Luke. Apocalyptic, in Kaiserman's sense, was the mother of genuine Christian theology, but the second generation had given it up. All this makes no historical sense in the first century, but it made a lot of sense in the second half of the 20th century. 
The end of the world notion worked well for Schweitzer and his followers, demythologized it worked well for Bultmann. The disappointed end of the world notion worked well for the post-Bultmann generation. This multiple unhistorical confusion sustained a theological climate in which Jesus himself and the writings of his first followers would simply not be available for the theologians puzzling over the interface between God and the world. And worse, the received view of Jesus and his followers, that they thought the world would end and it didn't, reinforced the tendency to hold God and the world at arm's length, thus rendering natural theology on the one hand, divine action within the world on the other, increasingly incredible. Now, in England and America, something different was happening with the same data. In England, at least, Scotland, I suspect, might be different, as often. Few people had read Hegel. Few believed in his inexorable, if dialectical, progress. The British Empire had its own version, wider still and wider, indeed. Most people were worried about Bach. Most people were worried about Marx. Schweitzer and Barth were greeted with respect, but also alarm, and Bultmann with worried incomprehension. The British tend to be suspicious of theory, preferring muddled pragmatism. And after all, England and America had won the wars, didn't have so much to worry about. We had other problems, but we didn't expect our theologians, let alone our biblical scholars, to help us solve them. In any case, the English have a Procrustean tendency with high-flown continental ideas. We chop off the incomprehensible philosophy and use what's left to answer the questions we were thinking of in the first place. And that's what happened with Bultmann and his successors. English-speaking readers left to one side his understandably tortured philosophical explorations. All they saw was a learned German reading the Gospels, and all they wanted to know was, does this turbocharged scholar think Jesus did and said what the Gospels say he did and said or not? Where does he stand on our 18th century debates? Does he support an interventionist deism or a non-interventionist deism? Bultmann wasn't addressing that question. He is still revered in Germany for his preaching, his spirituality, and his quiet stance under Hitler. But in English-speaking circles, he's just been regarded as a, quote, liberal, unquote. Another word whose meaning changes when you cross the North Sea, never mind the Atlantic. Those who have championed Bultmann in the Anglo-Saxon world have hailed him as a master because he sustained views they wished to promote, a theology which trimmed off the bits that modern science had rendered questionable, and an ethic more suited to finding out who you really are in progressive modernity. And many on both sides of the Atlantic responding to that have seen him simply as the denier of the faith. My aim here is simply to point out that when Anglo-Saxon readers encountered Schweitzer and Bultmann, they misunderstood both motivation and meaning. All they wanted was the open-ended invitation to revisionism, Jesus and the early church expected the end and structured their theology and ethics accordingly. Since they were so obviously wrong, we can reconstruct ours differently. That's the real cop-out. That is the real flag of convenience. And that is no way to build a theology, whether a natural theology or any other kind. But are the texts not clear? Did not Marx Jesus declare that some standing here would not taste death till they'd see the kingdom of God come with power? We will return to those questions in the fourth lecture. The provisional conclusion from today's survey of the questioned book, the challenges to the gospels and their portrait of Jesus, 
is that the actual historical task as proposed by Reimarus is still waiting to be addressed. As with all history, the problem is to think into the minds of people who think very differently from ourselves. 20th century studies of eschatology have mostly failed to grapple with the historical setting of Second Temple Jewish aspirations and retrievals of key texts and agendas. And the movement which has sailed under the flag of historical criticism has done too much criticism and not enough history. What if we did it differently? Might that help us to approach the questions surrounding natural theology in new ways? Could we, after all, look at something in the world, history included, and work up to God? Does God act within the world? Does the existence of evil at every level challenge all theology, except perhaps the Epicureanism, which explains that everything's random? I have stressed that this whole movement from the mid-18th century onwards was shaped within the Enlightenment worldview prevalent at the time, which brought the advancing tide of Epicureanism all the way up the cultural beach. Heaven and earth were set radically apart from one another. Not many first century Jews saw things like that. The variations within modern Western philosophies remain alien to the texts and the thought forms and the worldviews of Jesus and his contemporaries. At this point, of course, the familiar chronological snobbery sets in. They lived within an ancient worldview, but we, with our modern medicine and electricity, have a new one which makes the old one unavailable. As I argued last time, this is a self-serving fiction. The supposed new worldview is simply an ancient one, Epicureanism claiming to offer new supporting evidence. Modernism has used scientific advances as a pretext for a comprehensive worldview which they do not in fact demonstrate. It was the other way around. The already powerful 17th century Epicureanism offered a socially, culturally and politically attractive worldview for which then signs of biological evolution might seem to offer support. So the split between heaven and earth, between God and the world, continued to dominate the discussion. Whether on the part of those who wanted to emphasize the world and question God, Feuerbach and his followers, or on the part of those who wanted to emphasize God and his revelation and set that over against the world, Bart and Bultmann in their ways. Natural theology was by no means the only casualty in this long-running discussion. History itself, history as a discipline, was pushed out of the way. In particular, a historical account of how first century Jews themselves understood their world, including their own long story, was lacking. As the first step towards putting this right, we need to take a good look at what history itself might mean. The meanings of history have themselves been caught up in the very turmoil I have been describing, and they need sorting out. That will be the subject of next Monday's lecture. Thank you very much.